Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Apple shares surging today, up about 7%, the biggest gain at one point since April 2014. The shares now currently at the highest levels since November. The question is, did they deliver something so fabulous yesterday uh, after the bell that this is a worthwhile rally? And here to uh, perhaps cast a little skepticism is Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Nobody does that better. Covering all <laughs> things tech and perhaps deservedly. Let's hear what's going on here. So what's your take on this rally? Why are investors are so excited? Well, the, the short explanation is that Apple's results are less bad than people and maybe Apple itself thought a few months ago. So that's good news. Um, but look, it's still not great conditions for Apple. So look, uh, iPhone sales declined. I think it was seven, uh, revenue from iPhones declined 17% in the March quarter. The company forecast implies that revenue growth might be more or less flat from a year ago. So not great. And and you, you've seen from what the company has done that it's doing things like discounting iPhones in China, offering aggressive prices on um, trade-ins of older phones throughout uh, many of their markets. So, you know, they're effectively subsidizing um, iPhones to compensate for what has been declining unit sales of those devices. So I guess the question, one of the questions I heard from investors, you know, kind of on the call last night was trying to get a sense of this iPhone business. How much of it is a temporary weakness in iPhone sales or is this just a fundamental change in their phone business? You know, I actually think this is a, a significant failure of Wall Street to force Apple to answer the, to me, what to me is the most fundamental question about Apple's business. Smartphone sales globally are declining, and they have been declining for 18 months to two years, depending on, or maybe longer, depending on whose numbers you look at. And if you're Apple and you make the majority of your revenue from selling iPhones, that change in the market is an existential problem. And the company has never really had to address that question. Look, the market is declining. The market for your most important product is declining. Do you think it's temporary? If not, what are you doing about it? And um, the company really hasn't tackled that question head on. And again, I think that's a failure by investors. Although you could say, in fairness, Apple has been emphasizing their services and internet products side of the business. And that was one of the actual positives and surprisingly positive aspects of their earnings report was that they uh, showed bigger than expected gains in those areas. So uh, to some degree, couldn't you say that that's what they're trying to do is to offset some of the concerns about the slowing smartphone uh, cycle by emphasizing these other areas? Yeah, and I think that's a fair point, that, and that's what, certainly what Apple bulls have been focused on, is this growing pile of revenue and high-profit revenue, generally, from things like you know um, Apple's commission on App Store downloads or Apple Music subscriptions or their coming Apple television service or Apple Care warranties. So that is good news. But look, 
that cannot fully fill the hole left by declining iPhone sales. So one stat I had in my column was in the first half of Apple's fiscal year, iPhone revenue declined by $16 billion, and the gains of everything else, every other business at Apple, was $8.5 billion, right? So you can see that there is still a mismatch between the declining main business and the growth of their other businesses. And look, I also feel like eventually you sort of run out, you know, it's like the coyote that... I'm sorry, the, yeah, the coyote that you're running out over right. the canyon and the eventually- The are helpful. Yeah, yes. sorry. <laughs> Can't see them all. I, I kind of lost track of my cartoon metaphor. But anyway, you know, you, you, you're running, your legs are running and eventually you run out over the canyon and you fall that at some point, if Apple doesn't grow the number of new iPhone users, it is losing opportunities to sell, you know, apps and Apple Music subscriptions and Apple TV subscriptions to that pool of people who own Apple devices. And so far to their credit, they've managed to keep growing that revenue even as the, the pool of new iPhone buyers levels off. But I, I can't imagine that lasts forever, particularly if Apple doesn't make a more concerted effort to sell those services to people who don't own their devices. It's billions of people that Apple's ignoring. So is there, what do you think they need to do to maybe recharge the growth of this company? Is it is it something as big and existential and changing as a big acquisition, or is it just trying to build up their services business? I don't know, and I think part of it is what kind of company does Apple want to be in the future? If it wants to be, let's say, a low, a low to no growth company that generates revenue growth from squeezing its existing customers for more money, and my colleague Sarah Halzak and I compared this basically to like Starbucks and McDonald's, right? That restaurant traffic has been declining, but restaurants like McDonald's has been making up for it by price increases. So if Apple wants to do that, if this is an ARPU play, you generate more revenue from a stagnant base of users, fine, but that's not the Apple that people have come to expect. And that's not the, that's exactly right. They've been uh, such a great growth story and pro new product after new product. And, you know, where's the next new product? Shira Oaday, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Shira is a technology columnist uh, for Bloomberg Opinion. You can attach any number of superlatives to Shopify, the Canadian e-commerce retailer. Uh, if you take a look at its shares, they have more than doubled since Christmas Eve. They are the best performance, uh, performing shares on the S&P TSX Composite Index after a pot stock. Uh, joining us here uh, to talk about the company is Harley Finkelstein, Chief Operating Officer of Shopify. Uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. And Harley, before we get into all the superlatives, can you just give us a sense of what Shopify exactly is? Yeah, it's a great question. I think what we're best known for is, is helping small businesses build beautiful online stores. We've been doing that now for over 15 years, and people know us best for that. But I think actually today what Shopify is truly is we are a retail operating system. And what I mean by that is you can come to Shopify because you want to build a great online store, or maybe you want to sell offline in a brick-and-mortar store and use our point-of-sale product. Or maybe you want to cross-sell on Amazon or eBay or something like Instagram or Facebook. But the idea is that it all feeds back into one centralized back office, and that's Shopify. It's the first thing you open in the morning, last thing you close. And that's where you have your inventory, your customer information, your marketing data, that where you process shipping and payments. And that really is, is your business. Um, and so we're doing that now for about 820,000 uh, merchants who have sold more than $100 billion dollars on Shopify. Um, but I would say retail operating system is probably a better uh, definition of what we are today. 
So obviously you're benefiting from this tremendous secular move from bricks and mortars to e-commerce and people think of that and they think of Amazon, obviously. So aside from that great secular uh, wind that's that's at the back of your sales, what really are the growth drivers for your company here? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, we make it really, really easy to start a brand new business. So most of the most of the merchants that are on Shopify, these are first time entrepreneurs that are just getting started. In fact, every minute or so, a new business gets their first sale on Shopify, which is really exciting. Remember the first time that I had my first sale? I was an early Shopify merchant before I joined the company. What but, was your uh, business? It was called Smoofer. It was a t-shirt company. I, I had to support myself in law school and didn't have any money. Uh, my parents couldn't pay for school, so I built a, a, a Shopify store uh, back in 2006 and ended up selling t-shirts and paying my, my law school tuition. Um, and getting that first sale, was it, it changed everything. It meant that I had freedom and I had autonomy and all of a sudden now I, I can pursue my life's work. And that happens now almost every minute on Shopify. Um, so I would say that making it really easy for people to start means that not only we're we growing our piece of the pie, but we're growing the pie itself from a total addressable market perspective. And the ones that are successful on Shopify stay with us for a very long time. And in that journey, we try to find them all the things they need to run their business. So we created Shopify payments to give them economies of scale on payment rates. We gave them Shopify shipping rates, meaning they can get better rates to compute bigger companies. We now give capital. We've given out about over $500 million of capital to these small businesses. So the idea is to find all the pain points that an entrepreneur may have and make it easier for them. And actually, if you aggregate all of our stores all in one, pretend that we are a retailer, yeah. we would be the third largest U.S. e-com retailer. So we are able now to go to the shipping companies and the payment companies and negotiate rates as if we were the third largest uh, U.S. online retailer, but then give all these economies of scale to someone just starting at their mom's kitchen table. Really interesting. And just to sort of give uh, some more context after you reported earnings yesterday, uh, your second quarter revenue forecast did beat uh, estimates that was 1.5% above estimates. So uh, it seems like uh, things are going well. One question that I have, though, is we talk about Amazon and its dominance and its effort to create its own products. We talk about Walmart. We talk about, you know, sort of how the big behemoths are getting bigger. How do small businesses compete with those? How do people find these sites, uh, given how much big, big, uh, big store competition there is? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So one of the things we also have as part of that retail operating system is a marketing uh, marketing section, a place where a small business can go and easily able to buy ads on things like Google or Facebook. And on Monday, we announced a partnership with Snapchat. So now they can easily buy ads directly directly on Snapchat. Traditionally, if a small business wanted to go ahead and buy ads on Facebook or Google or Snapchat, they would have to go to three different sites, navigate the complexities of those ad platforms, and now we simplify it for them, and we can go to those companies to ensure they're getting the best rates possible. I think um, most people assume that, um, so right now, e-commerce globally is about $1.9 trillion. That's going to grow to about $4 trillion in the next few years. I think a lot of people automatically jump to Amazon owning the majority of that. I think Amazon ultimately will be the place where you you go to buy the stuff that you need as a consumer, your toilet paper, your shampoo. Your, your paper towel. But I think for most consumers today, they actually like buying stuff from the people that make it. So you look at some of our favorite stores like Bombas Socks or Tommy John Underwear or Allbird Shoes or Kylie Cosmetics or Fashion Nova. These are all small businesses that are really large on Shopify and they're able to sell direct to the end consumer in a way that they haven't been able to do before. I see on my uh, handy Bloomberg terminal here that Shopify gets about 70% of its revenue in the U.S. So talk to us about kind of how you view some of the opportunities outside of the U.S. and maybe North America broadly. Yeah, so it's, it's a great point uh, you make. Um, so traditionally, we've really focused on, on North America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and, and the UK. Uh, about a year ago, uh, almost to the day, we decided that it was time for us to expand to an international market. We knew we had merchants um, elsewhere that wanted to use our products. 
but we didn't feel we had the right product fit yet. And so we began that journey to find product market fit internationally. And so we've now translated the Shopify dashboard into uh, more than seven languages. We now have partners on the ground in, in, in most of those countries as priority countries uh, that can help you build an online store. And also we have the right payment gateways. So for example, in a place like Germany, credit card penetration is not as used as like debit cards are. So we had to um, begin the journey to find product market fit internationally. But I would say that um, the in the future, international will be a huge part of our story. We're just getting started with that right now. Do you still sell t-shirts? Uh, you can go to my t-shirt shop. It's uh, it's smoofer.myshopify.com. It's still up there. Uh, it's not it's, how it's, you're driving. But, but unfortunately, I've disabled the checkout because I don't have time to ship the products out anymore myself. Uh, but um, but actually, uh, it's 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 really great. In fact, Toby, our, our CEO and founder, he started Shopify because he wants to sell snowboards on the internet in 2004 and didn't like the software that was available, so wrote his own piece of software. And that software to sell those snowboards has become Shopify. That's a great story. That is a great story. Harley Finkelstein, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Harley is the Chief Operating Officer of Shopify. They are based in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, but he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. President Trump and a group of leading Democrats announced a promise of a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. To get a sense of what this means, we welcome Michael Zezas. Michael is the chief U.S. public policy and municipal strategist at Morgan Stanley. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. So what is your take on this plan that was announced after the Democrats met with President Trump? Yeah, and thanks for having me on. Um, I would say that until someone can identify what $2 trillion tax hike can fund this, that you should be deeply skeptical that something like this can happen. And in our view, we don't think you're going to see an infrastructure package uh, before 2021 because of it. I mean, there are just a couple of numbers to put it in perspective, because there's a lot of different taxes that have been floated out there as potentially pay-fors, right? So if you increase the gas tax 200%, that would get you about $400 billion. Uh, if you rolled back the corporate tax rate by five points, that'd get you about $500 billion. If you took the two, top two tax brackets up by a percentage each, that gets you $120 billion. Those are all extremely politically sensitive. And if you did all of them, you'd still have a trillion dollars left to go. So uh, I think fair to say you can color us pretty skeptical about this going forward. So, Michael, there is a question, though, of the private intervention here, the private involvement in some sort of infrastructure plan. Elaine Chow, the transportation secretary, saying, uh, telling Bloomberg Television at the Milken Institute Global Conference in Los Angeles that there are private pension funds as well as endowment funds that would love to play uh, to the opportunity to invest in public infrastructure. Do you see that materializing something on that front? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting idea. And obviously, we, we've dealt with this for uh, 10, 20 years now, the sort of uh, the, the talk of there being a tremendous amount of interest from private capital and in investing and owning and operating public infrastructure assets. But uh, you know, from my perspective as a municipal analyst, I can tell you that I, I don't feel confident that the supply of those assets is there. And, and what I mean by that is that you know, state and local governments own about 88% of all infrastructure assets in the U.S., uh, but they're, they're sort of highly incentivized to keep them, right? So it's a revenue-producing asset. Generally, state and local governments don't give them up unless they uh, are somewhat desperate uh, for money. And uh, the cost of financing uh, the construction of new assets is frankly just a lot cheaper through the tax-exempt bond market 
than giving up a cost of capital seven to eight percent returns for the private sector. So um, while you know P3s are generally the rule rather than the exception in other countries, largely because of the federalist system we've set up here and the availability of tax exempt financing, they're more the exceptions than the rule. And I would expect that to continue. So I don't think it's a bad idea to do what you can to incentivize private capital to come in, but I wouldn't expect that to be the thing that catalyzes the major infrastructure investment that the U.S. needs to get back up to speed. Uh, so, Michael, if this $2 trillion number that was thrown out by the Democrats and President Trump is not you know, necessarily that realistic, what do you think can actually get done from the federal level? Yeah, well, I, unfortunately, I think on this issue, we're gridlocked until the next election because, um, frankly, what you need is one party in control of both the White House and Congress and to, for them to make this their top priority. And it's probably because if you if you, know, you go through the list of uh, tax revenues that we just talked about, there's probably not a politically friendly way to completely fund this. And so you need one party or the other to kind of frame this as um, a deficit-financed investment um, but in, in sort of politically friendly terms, right, as an economic investment or, or some, some other way that's consistent with their ideology. Uh, so in the meantime, between now and then, um, I, I think, unfortunately, you're gridlocked. And even if you do the exercise of thinking about, well, what, what if we're wrong and what if they actually could do a funded infrastructure plan, maybe slim it down to a trillion dollars over 10 years? Um, you know, for investors, I don't know that that necessarily sends clear signals on what to do, right? If it's funded, it's not a technically a fiscal stimulus. So over the next six to 12 months, it doesn't necessarily translate into a GDP boost. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are companies that should benefit from this, but if you're rolling back the corporate tax rate, that cuts against them, right? Or if you're increasing the gas tax, that hurts uh, autos and freight transportation. Right. So there's just a lot of mixed signals on what investors can take away from this. I'm curious from your perspective, what's the most pressing infrastructure project that the federal government uh, could finance or push along that, that localities cannot? Well, you know, I don't know that there's one project in particular. I mean, there obviously are several critical infrastructure projects uh, in major urban hubs around the country. I think this is a situation where there just needs to be more federal money brought to bear in the aggregate, and that that's sort of priority number one as opposed to being specific well, and surgical. Yep. But the reason why I ask is because we've been talking about the record volume of cash that's flooded into the municipal bond market. And we've uh, talked about how, yes, these are slow moving freight trains when you talk about local governments. Uh, but why couldn't they take that private money and pump it into projects that they need? Well, they can, but I think it's a question of uh, whether or not municipalities are willing to access uh, the tax exempt market to undertake uh, new money financing, right? So it's not that the money isn't there. It's a question of whether or not the willingness is there. And the constraint that state and local governments face is kind of a, it's a combined political and fiscal constraint. And what I mean by that is that there's generally reticence to um, increase taxes to help finance borrowing. Um, and budgets are already constrained from a combination of factors uh, high operating leverage for one, um, as well as pension overhang in a lot of different areas. So you have a system where state and local governments spend about 70% of the money on infrastructure in this country, um, but for a combination of political and fiscal reasons are constrained. So they have been increasing, in particular over the last two years, they have been increasing their infrastructure spend 
but just not to the degree that gets you the the sort of catch up to potential that we need to to be at. And that's where the fe- the federal government's role um, hypothetically then should be to really come in and juice that entire process with more money. So, Michael. I'm a resident of New Jersey. I take the train every day back and forth under the Hudson River tunnels, and I fully expect them to cave in on me one day. So let's talk about the Gateway Project. What is the status of that? Because that is going to be a state and federal partnership to get that done. What's the status of that? Yeah, also a resident of New Jersey. Uh, So I I understand where you're coming from. Um, I think this is a situation where the, the the money for that project's largely already been approved. Um, it, it's been somewhat delayed over the last couple of budget rounds, uh, and what appears to be sort of a, a personal disagreement between the president and Chuck Schumer. Uh, so I think this is a situation where the the money, because it's already been approved, will eventually make it to its target, but it's being uh, delayed for. Largely reasons of politics, uh, which is not particularly comforting, uh, I understand, but um, this appears to be a situation where the money's already approved for it. Yeah. Um, we're speaking with Michael Zizis, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist at Morgan Stanley. I want to just uh, let you know that uh, William Barr, Attorney General, is currently giving his opening statement in front of the Senate, uh, discussing, of course, the Robert Mueller report that he did release uh, with, with redactions and did summarize. There is obviously a, a concern uh, on the part of Robert Mueller, as expressed by a letter released earlier today, that it was not uh, fully uh, represented in the summary. We will bring you all of that when we get it. Michael, we want to continue the conversation here because as much as perhaps a $2 trillion infrastructure spending plan is not realistic or feasible politically, uh, there is a question of the municipal markets right now and given how much money has gone in. And I'm wondering from your perspective, especially where we are uh, in the economic cycle and given the tax cuts, I'm wondering from your perspective, which areas do you see as the strongest and the weakest right now from an investing standpoint? Yeah, well, for us, we think the opportunity still lies more in the uh, enterprise segments of the municipal market as opposed to the state and local government segments of the municipal market, right? So that's uh, the public enterprises like airports and toll roads and not-for-profit hospitals and higher education institutions. Um, And that's not necessarily because there's more yield to be captured in those areas, but more because we remain concerned about the the overhang of liabilities uh, that continue to pressure state and local governments, uh, and that the next time we have a recession, we think we'll exert a fair amount of pressure uh, on budgets, right? So that is deferred capital needs, that is underfunded retiree liabilities, the types of things that in good economic times, uh, you have you know, strong and growing tax revenues, and so you can kind of deal with the cost of those things as they come. But when tax revenues are declining in a recession, that financial leverage becomes operating leverage, which uh, creates a budget deficit and forces some really tough choices. We don't think the market's properly uh, priced in that segment for that. But the key there is if you're looking for the market to weaken on that future dynamic, it requires you to place a a high probability on there being a recession. And that's just not in our base case right now. And obviously, I think investors don't really have that in their base case right now. So the market, um, in our view, even though it's pretty rich, can keep keep humming along. 
Michael Zizas, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Michael Zizas, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal, Municipal Strategist for Morgan Stanley, uh, joining us in New York. Switching gears, let's go back to the financial markets. You know, we think about the melt-up in the financial markets so far in 2019. One sector that has certainly participated has been the U.S. high-yield market. We welcome uh, Ken Monahan, Amundi Pioneer, co-director of High Yield. Ken, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What are you seeing in the high-yield market so far this year? It's been a great rebound off of that December low. Thank you for having me again. And uh, a melt-up is the correct phrase for this because we've certainly had a dramatic rally. Uh, spreads have tightened in dramatically since um, their, their, their wides of December uh, when we were trading at about 550 basis points over. And uh, we're now down to about 375. And that means that high yields made almost 9% year-to-date. It's been a big year like equities. Yeah, so it's made almost 9% this year. That is the best return for the first four months of the year since 2009, uh, when the market was rebounding from the worst financial crisis since the Great Recession. I'm just wondering, what do you think the full year 2019 total return is going to be for U.S. high-yield bonds? Well, I think that if you look at uh, the, uh, the prognosticators out there right now, they're talking about a double-digit return for the year. And that makes sense if you kind of layer in a 4% plus current yield for high yield. Uh, for the remaining eight months of the year, it can get up to a double-digit return. Double digits could be 12, 10%. 13, yeah. It could be 40%. What are you talking about? <laughs> 40 is hard. It's really hard to get to. Yeah, okay. 12 to 13 is, is certainly within the range. That's, the, that's certainly, if, if, and that's assuming we straight line it. Uh, and obviously, uh, markets don't generally move in a straight line. Um, but uh, So I'm not saying that there's not going to be any disruption between now and the end of the year, but it's certainly achievable. So given that great performance, almost 9% uh, off of the low, where are you seeing value today in the high yield market? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to find value. So if we look at double Bs, which is a significant portion of the market, uh, spreads are only about uh, 16 basis points or so uh, wider than they were at their October troughs, which is uh, when early October we hit the post-recession trough. Uh, and we're a little wider, but not dramatically so. Triple C's, on the other hand, are significantly wider, and as one of your reporters has recently written, um, that there are opportunities, perhaps in the triple B space, a triple C space, we're one of those who's looking for value there. That doesn't mean that uh, we're we're buying them, uh, you know, without any um, uh, selectivity at all. Um, you're having to kind of really go and look for that proverbial needle in the haystack. And the market's very bifurcated between triple C's we wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole and those that look more attractive. And those are harder to find. Yesterday, we were speaking with Bering CEO Tom Fink, and he said that he is seeing the pendulum switch a little bit uh, more toward leveraged loans over high-yield bonds, given how much high-yield debt has rallied uh, and the loans have kind of lagged behind. Do you agree? I, well, you've certainly seen a pickup in returns for, for loans as well because they had gotten beaten up. Having said that, there is a much higher percentage of the marketplace that is leveraged loans that are trading above par right now. Uh, and with leveraged loans, you don't have a whole lot further to go than par because that's what they're going to pay you back and there's no prepayment penalty. Um, so that's a problem. And uh, leveraged loans particularly look particularly cheap. Uh, in the fourth quarter of last year when they got beaten up, as did high-yield bonds. And I know that there are a lot of uh, structured products or CLO managers that were quite excitedly picking up loans at that point and, 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 uh, and banking them for new transactions that have been priced this year, which ought to do quite well. Uh, but I think leverage loans, your upside is limited, and that's the problem. 
So we're, we're 10 years into this economic cycle. How is, when you take a look at your portfolio or some of the issues you're looking at, how is the credit quality given where we are in the cycle right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you, if you look at it, um, you're not seeing the types of things, at least yet, that you would typically see that are aggressive behaviors. So you talk about zero coupon bonds, pay-in-kind bonds, a large number of dividend transactions where companies are borrowing money just to repay the private equity sponsor. Now, there are some of those in the offing. It's clear because we're hearing some rumors of some of them right now. And uh, that may indicate that you know we're kind of uh, closer to the ninth inning than we are the sixth or seventh. Uh, this recovery has certainly gone on for a long period of time. We're, what, in the 117th or 18th month at this point? Um, uh, since the, the end of the recession in 09. Um, but uh, as we know, recessions don't, uh, excuse me, recoveries don't die of old age. So you said that there are some deals on tap, dividend uh, pay- repayment deals? Right, there are, yeah. And you unannounced, that's, that's but uh, we know that they're out there. Unannounced deals that they're out there, also pick toggle deals? I haven't seen any pick toggles yet. That would be an interesting one to see come back. <laughs> I'm not saying that won't, but, uh, you know, that, that kind of is the kind of aggressive transaction structure you tend to see at the end of the cycle when people are trying to figure out, how do I make a little bit extra return in my portfolio? Yeah, just before whatever. Yeah, everything explodes, right? <laughs> well, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that either. But, no, uh, but don't worry. Uh, well, we try not to, to butcher that. Ken Monahan, thank you so much. As always, we love your insights. Ken Monahan, a Mooney Pioneer, co-director of High Yield. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.